Blog Talk Radio. today. Good love. Is your relationship everything you want it to be? Are you living a fulfilled, passionate life empowered with choices that ignite you to the next level? Good love makes your whole life better. So join America's good love doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade, on a journey to your healthiest life yet. A regular on Dr. Oz and Dr. Drew, she's appeared on Oprah, Good Morning America, and is featured in countless publications from USA Today to Essence Magazine. The creator of life-changing Get Unstuck Now, Love, Money, and Save a Seminars, she's counseled millions, but today she's here just for you with the hottest topics, guests, and trends. This is Good Love with Dr. Brenda Wade. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to Good Love with me, your love doctor. That's Good Love Doctor, Dr. Brenda Wade. I'm very excited about tonight's program. It's an important one because we're going to talk about something that is on everybody's mind, and that is fear. How does that impact us that we live in a culture of fear, fear of Ebola, fear of a terrorist attack, fears that the government is spying on us. And with the recent Hollywood sex hacking scandal with Jennifer Lawrence, there's been a lot of fear. The actress Jennifer Lawrence said, I was just so afraid. I didn't know how this would affect my career. Just because I'm an actor doesn't mean I asked for this. And it's very, very, very important for us to recognize that fear sets in motion a cycle. And we're going to talk about that cycle tonight and where it can lead. So as always, we're going to focus on why good love is essential to your greatness and how conquering fear can help us in our love lives. We're going to discuss how to identify negative love patterns that might be blocking you from good love and how you can break the chains of what happens then so you're free to experience what is happening now. And, of course, we have our own mantra. That mantra is, I am worthy. You can say it to yourself or out loud. I am worthy followed by, I am deserving. Breathe it in. I am deserving. And I love me unconditionally. And that mantra might be more important tonight for this program than any other program because it may give us protection against the fallout from fear because excessive fear and anxiety leads to depression. And that depression, of course, 
led to the shocking death of Robin Williams, which affected so many people, leaving them wondering why a lovable entertainer would take his life. And tonight, our guest, Diana Bonney, can relate. After the suicide of her husband, she struggled with so many unanswered questions of her own and questions about how her children could make sense of this and carry on. She says it's time for us to create a healthy dialogue about a loaded and taboo topic, and that is suicide. Now, I want you to understand, suicide has happened in more families and taken more lives than all of the wars, all of the disease, all of the natural disasters combined. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is that happening now? What do we need to do about it? So I am so happy to welcome to the program tonight Diana Bonney, who is the author of the upcoming book, Living on the Fault Lines. She has a blog that offers resources for support, advice, and healing after suicide. Talks also about parenting and self-care solutions. That website is www.livingonthefaultlines.com. And fault lines is like those fault lines in the earth, here especially in Northern California. All right, welcome, Diana Bonney. Uh, thank you. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And you're talking about a difficult topic. And mm. on that, I'm very sorry for your loss and that you and your children have gone through an experience that must have been devastating on so many levels. It was. And it, you know, continues to be a journey that we go through. And, you know, what I'm doing now with my blog and talking openly about it is hopefully creating a space for dialogue around it because one of the scariest things about suicide in the aftermath is the silence and the isolation. And I think that that's something that really, you know, we weren't talking about cancer and things, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think suicide is coming up for its evolutionary kind of opening into our vernacular. And uh, it's time. So, Yeah, it is time to talk about it. So, Diana, tell us a bit of your journey, your story personally, so we can get to know you a little bit, and if there's a way that you can explain from your point of view how your husband's suicide came about. But let's start with you. Well, you know, I was married for 23 years, and he had an alcohol problem uh, that I really didn't quite grasp that it was something that he had to take charge of. I kept thinking if I just, you know, gave him enough support and and helped and offered resources and everything else that maybe it would change. And essentially what happened uh, one day is, is we discovered that he was living a double life. And I think it was just too big for him to face. And so the suicide was his way of dealing with it, unfortunately. And, you know, in, in the days following that for me, my children at the time were 12, 15, and 16, and I really started to realize that I was facing um, some very dire consequences, and the statistics are that your children are six times more likely to commit suicide um, when a parent you know, does that. 
So really my story begins with about a week after the suicide where I ran into an acquaintance and he had heard some of what had happened to me and he asked me to go out to coffee so I could share the story. And in sharing it uh, when I was finished, he, he looked at me and he said, you know, Diana, I have never told anyone this before, but when I was 13, my father committed suicide and my mother forbade me from ever speaking of it or him again. And he collapsed on me and just, started sobbing and there was this sort of you know out-of-body experience for me realizing that I was holding the 13 year old boy and that this was where my children could possibly be headed if I didn't take some pretty drastic measures to create conversation and an opening for them to make sense of this right here and now instead of like him 20 30 40 years down the road with alcohol and everything else poured over it and that's really you know where how it evolved and how my journey sort of began to unfold and stepping into that space and finding the courage, you know, to talk about it. Wow. That's an amazing story that you're talking about. It made it safe for someone else. And in my own family, I had a nephew who took his life and at age 26, which was just heartbreaking, mm. and drugs and alcohol were implicated. And I do know that for many people where addictive illness seems like something they can't cope with and can't conquer, that this seems like the way out. Now, part of it, everyone, you bear with me because all of our listeners know I am a bit of a research um, nut, and I want to just give you one research fact that could be very important. In addition to the vulnerability of children whose parents take their lives, which Diana has already spoken about. The other side of it is remember the brain gets the last word. And where there is drug addiction, where there is fear, as I said at the top of the show, and anxiety, the brain ends up being depleted because Mm -hmm. drugs of any kind, that includes alcohol, over time block the receptor sites for the things that make us feel good, the feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, those things are blocked. So depression is the only thing that can occur when the brain is depleted. So think depleted brain equals depression. So that is one of the markers we have to keep an eye on. So, Diana, how did your children cope with their father's death? They were so young. Well, you know, it, it was obviously very confusing, and I think um, in hindsight, when I look back at it, I really think giving them the opening to be talking about it and letting them answer questions or ask questions and being really honest with them, saying, you know, I may not have the answers, but we can find them together. And also, you know, there may not be no, there may not be any answers because in suicide, you know, often you're never going to really know the answer, are we? I mean, it, it, it is the, the question that will hang over your life, um, you know, infinitum, ad infinitum. So they are really doing well now. I mean, they are 17, 20, and 21, and very, very um, compassionate and, you know, can talk about this in a way that I think um, I'm really pleased with because it's, it's you know, obviously it's something they're going to process for the rest of their lives. I, I don't think suicide or any death is something you ever necessarily get over, but my goal was to integrate what happened into their lives so that it was a part of them and not something outside of them that began to control them 
and, you know, eventually lead down the road you're talking about with drugs and alcohol where you start to just wanting, keep, wanting to keep numb, numbing that and keeping it away from you. So um, I think the conversation has worked really well, you know, being open with them and honest about it. Good for you. Now, if you would like to join the conversation with Diana Bonney to talk about the links between fear and anxiety, perhaps addictive illness, depression, suicide, that there's a chain reaction here. If you have a question or an experience you'd like to share, you can call us at 347-989-0776 at 347-989-0776 or hit us back on Facebook at Dr. Brenda Wade. Tweet us, Dr. Brenda Wade. We would love to hear from you and this is something that touches so many of us, Diana, and you said something a minute ago about keeping it inside and how just keeping a secret can turn us in on ourselves, and I'm sure you know the old saying, we are only as sick as our secrets, because Mm. secrets do make us sick. They do. They do indeed, and I'm a big believer in that, so I was certainly a big driving force, you know, and I think all families have secrets, and for, you know, unfortunately, and some like the man I was speaking to, bigger than others, um, and trying to keep them out in the open is very important for healing, you know. Uh, and the, the key here about the secret, like the man you were speaking with, is his mother thought that by not talking about it, the family would not be exposed to the shame. Mm-hmm. And Nobody is to blame if someone makes this devastating choice. And there's nothing to be ashamed of, but when we don't talk about it, the message is you should be ashamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think people definitely get caught between the, a sort of bumper lane of did I do something to cause this and was there something I could have done to stop it. And there's a lot of fear in examining that, and you know the blame comes into play. Um, you know, and then people kind of get lost in that, and and the the way they deal with it is by not talking about it at all. And then, of course, you know, we know these things don't go away, and we know that unresolved trauma eventually erodes and depletes the soul. So, um, talking about it, I think, is is a good way. It's a good start, and then there's a lot of other steps after that. But I think, you know, talk, finding the courage and opening the door to talking about it is is the beginning. Okay, we have our first question. This came in via Facebook, and it's a mother who says her son, who indeed was, she says he indeed was an addict, and he took his life. I am still struggling with this after seven years. What would you advise me to do? Well, for me, what you know, when I talk to people about this, I, I think the beginning of healing is really giving yourself permission to heal and, you know, understanding that this person made a choice that, you know, we don't like uncertainty and we like to think we can control things, but unfortunately life is uncertain and there are things that we have no control over. And what I really try to encourage people to do in these situations um, is you know, to find a lot of compassion for yourself and to give yourself that permission to 
be with the pain. And, you know, none of this is easy. And I, I wish I could say there was a magic pill. But for me, the journey I've been on for the last four years was really learning how to tolerate the discomfort and learning how to be with these really uh, unfamiliar in the beginning emotions, you know, the pain and the humiliation. And eventually what happens, I think of them like children. You know, when children want attention, they just keep pulling at your leg and pulling at your leg. And when you finally acknowledge them and give them their due, they, you know, they will go on their way. And what I have found with emotions is when you allow them to pass through you, that they will eventually, you know, start to distill into wisdom and start to become guideposts for how you go forward. But as long as you're pushing that away and as long as you're not giving your emotions their due, I think people are, are going to remain stuck in the pain. So you're, when you say give your emotions their due, what do you mean exactly, Diana? Well, I, you know, not to sound woo-woo about it or anything, I, I think, you know, emotions are, to me, guideposts. You know, they tell us things. They're information. And, you know, we're, I think our society is afraid to be angry. We don't really know what to do with sadness and, you know, be, be happy and, and put a smile on your face. And I grew up in this kind of environment. So, you know, when I say give them their due, I mean feel them. I mean, I mean sit down on the floor Get out a piece of paper, write down your, your anger, and get, really get to the point where you are feeling it, where you are so overwhelmed with either crying or anger so that it has the chance to, you know, to move through you. And don't, you know, don't feel like you have to um, you know, pretend that these emotions aren't there. Don't filter them. Really allow them to come through, and it's kind of a process. I mean, it's, you, know, you start out, and for me, writing was a huge piece of my healing and led me to the blog and the book and everything else I'm doing. But just being able to sit down in front of a blank page and say, how do I feel? And, and write, you know, the anger out and write the, the different emotions that were coming up and start to identify those pieces and then giving myself permission to feel them, I think will take people a long way in beginning this journey to healing and, and understanding you know, you have. To, I think we all have to come to our own understanding of what this person, whether it's your son, this, the mother who's written in, or a husband, you know, there's so many different reasons and variations for suicide. And so we have to come, you know, to our own understanding of it because they're gone. And we're never going to really fully know why they did it. And I think the best we can do is, is try to honor ourselves in the process. Yes, and the other side of it is, of course, for teenagers who take their lives, often it is a moment of impulse. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that's premeditated. The young person doesn't have the wherewithal to say, gee, um, I'll get through this, I can get help, I can get resources. They just, because of the way the brain is wired when you're a teen, especially if that teenage brain is impacted by drugs or alcohol, that teenager simply in that moment is overwhelmed and says, okay, I'd be better off if I'm not here. And right. 90%, this is important to remember, 90% of teenagers who attempt suicide but are saved are grateful, mm. grateful that they didn't succeed. Right. Well, they, I think a lot of them just don't have tools. Well, I think a lot of us, you know, in general don't have the tools to handle some of these things. And, it's it's interesting the question you know of why people commit suicide because I I think um, you know there's a lot of bullying out there there you know these war veterans who are coming home and are are we equipped emotionally to to be handling you know really intense bullying are we equipped to 
go to war and witness the atrocities of mankind at war and come home and expect to just reintegrate into society. And so I think the conversation, you know, needs to be broadened out from, um, you know, not just it's not just mental illness. There are things in society that are happening, and I think we need to create, you know, ways for people to really um, handle them and be able to weather them, really. What are some of the ways that people can handle them, given that you just described some of the things where part of the equation is people's brains are injured when a veteran mm-hmm. comes back or a child is living with bullying. These are mm. traumas that are verifiable in terms of changes in the brain. You know, that syndrome I described earlier, the depletion equals depression. That's what our veterans, these are actual injuries. That's why we've changed the name from PTSD, like it's a disorder, because veterans made the point, hey, if I had any other kind of wound, would you say I have a disorder? So now mm. we don't say disorder, we say PTS, and that it is a wound. And we've got wounded teenagers. So, Diana, how do you approach this? I know that one of the things you talk about is the need for deeper conversations, the need for more engagement, where the word I would use is we really get our arms around one another. It is. I mean, that's really what it is, uh, Dr. Wade. You know, it, it is intentionally interacting with people and, you know, cr- creating an intimacy with them so they know they're supported. I mean, here we live in this time where we're more, you know, supposedly more interconnected via the Internet and all of our devices, and yet people feel more disenfranchised and isolated than ever before because there is no real conversation going on anymore. And I don't think there's eye contact and all of the basics that I think you and I grew up with. So I think it is going back to, you know, simpler time and really listening, you know, to your children. I mean, I I know kids around here that I've spoken to, a lot of them say, I just wish my parents would listen to me because they're not they're not getting that full connection. They're not being able to plug in with somebody who's taking them seriously about being bullied or whatever it is. And I think, you know, that is certainly one big piece. And another big piece, you know, as far as you're talking about with the brain, I think with a lot of these teenagers, um, there's, there's not a lot of self-care in terms of taking care of their brain with eating well. I really encourage on the blog, you know, getting getting yourself really well nourished and hydrated and taking care of the ecosystem because if your brain isn't functioning, if you're eating tons of sugar and tons of, you know, gluten or whatever it is and it, it's making your system crazy, you're going to have a hard time focusing and being able to move out of the depression or the pain that you're in. Um, you know, it's kind of an invisible thing there. Um and I and another big thing which I you know, some people struggle with, but I, I do think meditation can lead lead people to a place where they're able to just learn to sit with themselves and learn to be okay with the silence and and you know, the wisdom that bubbles up out of that silence. And that is something that I think we would do very well to teach all of our teenagers and children how to do so that if they aren't getting the connection and the intimacy that they need, you know, from their family or their school that they can create it within themselves to a certain degree. I could not agree with you more. And our audience has heard me repeatedly advocate what I call MEDS, and that's spelled M-E-D-D-S-S, and M stands for meditation. E for Mm -hmm. exercise, D for diet, 
that healthy diet. And then there's detox, because we've got to keep the body detox, keep our emotions detox, keep our thoughts detox. Even our spiritual lives need detox. And then from the detox and diet, we have to have good sleep and support. And all of this because the research shows every one of those things, meditation, exercise, diet, detox, sleep and support, impact, guess what? The brain. And when that brain is healthy and fully loaded with those good neurotransmitters, we feel good and I was in a recent conversation with Deepak Chopra, and Dr. Chopra said to me, you know, I haven't missed a day of meditation in 30 years. I meditate with my wife, my children, and my grandchildren because I believe it's essential. So I'm on that train with you, Mm -hmm. definitely on that train with you. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's a big one. And I, I think, you know, people don't really realize how important that is when you can just create that stillness within yourself. Yeah, and it will take you. Yeah. Everybody, a lot of us, you know, who grow up in the Western world, we kind of go, meditation, what's that? You can meditate by simply turning on quiet music and closing your eyes for just three to five minutes and listening to the music or light a candle and just gaze at the flame of the candle. The key is you're quieting your mind. When the mind becomes quiet, the brain says, oh, you mean there's no lion in the grass? I don't have to run for my life or fight for my life. Let me get rid of these stress hormones for you. Mm-hmm. And after we calm down, then that wisdom kicks in, as you were saying a few minutes ago, and I, I love it. Diana, that you can see the connection. Now, for your children, you being widowed in this dramatic way where you mentioned the word humiliation and becoming a single parent, you said you had a lot of vivid dreams of being thrown out of a small boat at sea in a violent Mm -hmm. storm. How did you cope with that? I, you know, it was interesting, and it, it so mirrored what was happening in my life at the time. And you know, looking back on it, um, it was it was terrifying to be honest, because they were. I, I'm not really a person who I dream, but I don't typically really remember them. But these were so powerful, and it literally, you know, I would be thrown off a boat and into these giant waves, and there was never any shore for the longest time, and it was just this constant, you know, being thrown from one wave to the next. And then eventually, as my outer life kind of started to become a little less chaotic, uh, the dreams, you know, sort of mirrored that, and the waves got smaller, and then I began to see the shore. But I, you know, I I handled it, honestly, through journaling and also through meditation and just kind of observing what was happening in my head and trying to follow, you know, the metaphors and everything that that were presenting themselves for me. Yeah. Well, journaling certainly is impactful, Meditating, absolutely. And that S at the end of that meds model is support. Were you able to find support for yourself? I was. I mean, I, you know, I really, I think that the biggest part of my healing was writing and then also reaching out to people. And what I have found, which is amazing, is that there is a huge invisible population of people out there who are living in the aftermath of suicide. And, you know, normally suicide is not a topic that most people would jump into and talk about, but because I'm me and this happened and I wanted to try and find my way through, 
I typically will somehow the conversation will lead there. And I'm telling you, it is amazing how many people have been affected by, you know, a friend, a, a family member, a coworker. Uh, so support for me was, you know, through therapy. It was through uh, finding connections and talking to people. And then also when I started the blog, I, you know, had a lot of people coming and writing to me, and that's been uh, very, very helpful to understand other people's journeys and the similarities that run through these experiences that we have. So if you were to give advice right now to anyone who's experiencing sadness, grief, loss, depression, any of these things, we've talked about meds, but if someone is experiencing that aftermath, and the aftermath, by the way, as you've said already, can last for years, especially if you didn't get to address it when it happened, like the Mm -hmm. gentleman you were speaking about. What's the very first thing you would advise people to do? And you use a phrase here that I have to quote that just struck me. I think it's amazing. You said, healing doesn't happen by chance. And you can finish the rest of that sentence. Yeah, yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice. It is, and it is a choice. And I think people need to understand that. That you know what happens with suicide, it, it comes in and creates a huge void in your life. And I, so there, there's kind of two pictures that I want for people. One is, the, is that it creates this void. And what are you going to curate that's going to go in that void? Are you going to put compassion and curiosity and and you know self love and mindfulness and awareness? Or are you going to allow it to fill itself with shame and fear and blame and other people's opinions? So I think the first step is to really get solid in yourself and take care of your own, you know, space mentally so that you can align with your own wisdom. And then the second sort of metaphor or visual I use with this is that it's like a landslide that comes through your life. And typically what people do is they just try to live in the ruins of the landslide instead of getting out, you know, removing and excavating what left salvageable and you know rebuilding um, their life they tend to live in the landslide in the muck and you know I think we have to make this choice that I'm going to heal and this person that I loved or my friends that I cared about made this choice to end their life and am I going to let that dictate the rest of my life or am I going to take it and try and learn from it and and create something and go in a direction that you know, perhaps if they if they had the full capacity of their brain that they would want me to go in, or am I just going to live in the suffering and the misery? So I think that those those pieces are, are the first thing I yeah, start with. Yeah, and the with. suffering and misery, everybody, is the first stage. You really, as Diana said earlier, have to go there. And because we are so adverse to feeling feelings in our culture, sometimes it's hard to give yourself permission. But start there. Diana Bonnie, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your openness. Oh, we had one more question. Uh, it's, uh, have you become a resource for people who've experienced suicide in their lives? I have. I, do, I have quite a few resources on my blog if you go there. I, and I'm, I actually am working with people one-on-one and creating a whole sort of movement, I hope, you know, based around courage and everything. So, yes, I do have quite a few resources. And if I can help, I would be happy to, you know, in any way. And it's called, by the way, the blog is Living on the Fault Lines. Living on the Fault Lines. Lines, plural, yeah. Lines, yes. Living on the Fault Lines. So, Diana, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. And this is part of the human experience, the experience of loss. And it's part of loving, to be able to love yourself 
and love others, even though loss is a part of life. So be very aware that we are here to love and to give, and the more we give, the more we're able to live. So thank you. Check out Diana Bonney's work. And everyone, I also will send you back to listen to one of the shows that we did a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Jamie Turndorf, who wrote the book Love Never Dies. I think there's a nice link between the work that these two wisdom teachers are doing. And I want you to stay in touch with me. Hit me back on Facebook, Dr. Brenda Wade. Tweet me, Dr. Brenda Wade. Follow us on Twitter. Or you can send me an email at love at docwade.com. And this weekend, if you're ready to have a breakthrough in your life, here in our classroom, there is a spiritual retreat called Clearing the Path. And it's all about awakening intimacy. And if you're ready to awaken intimacy in your life, I can't recommend anything more highly than this spiritual retreat led by wonderful teachers who truly deliver. Because I took this class, took this retreat, and wow and wow, everybody. You can register for it at clearingthepathoneventbrite.com or send us an email and we'll register you here love at docway.com. All right, everyone, I love you. I'm sending you blessings, and we'll be with you again next week. If you have ideas for programs you'd like to hear or questions, send them to us. Thank you to Mr. LeGrand Green, our producer, to Cliff Dunning, our associate producer, and we'll be with you soon. Good night. Mm-hmm.